the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's an old guy and apparently getting older day by day. Good afternoon. (laughs) Is this the complaint department? I'd like to file a complaint. I'm getting old. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is, of course, a Tuesday, the 16th of April, and welcome on again to another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Coming up a little bit later on in today's program, we're going to be joined by the author of Wall Street to the Well, Stuart Fudendorf. And I know I'll butcher that poor last name several times before the evening is over with, no doubt. Um, You're familiar with the story Leonardo DiCaprio was in, The Wolf of Wall Street? Um, There is an image that most um, Wall Street big shots are pretty evil start to finish through and through. That's not always the case, as we're going to learn from our special guest tonight. He'll join us coming up a little bit later on. By the way, he serves as senior pastor at Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. That conversation as we talk about his life story, Wall Street to the Well, a story of transformation from fortune to faith, coming up later on in tonight's program. Also, our good friend, religion and culture expert, Dr. Alex McFarland, will stop by, uh, proverbial speaking, a little bit later on on in the program. I, I want to lead off with a couple of quick items. First, if I might, um, with much joy, we announced on the program last week when Janet Folger was with us that Ohio um, had passed the heartbeat bill. Uh, this is a bill that essentially bans abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Um, it is a major step in the right direction toward protecting life. And uh, and we're seeing more and more states that are beginning to look at this and say, you know, if we base it all on science, science tells the story, and the story is there's a life there. And so on the heels of the state of Ohio passing the heartbeat bill, city of Columbus decided, nah, no, we're against this. They signed a resolution last night against the recently passed heartbeat bill. Supporters of the new law say that all children should get the chance to live, including ones still in the mother's womb. Those in favor of abortion, of course, argue that there are medical procedures that are often in the best interest of the mother and baby's lives. How can that ever be unless it's it's really something tragic going on, which would be uh, a, a small percentile of cases? How is abortion in the best interest of the baby's life. Wow, that's a bit of a distorted view on the preciousness of life, I would say. At any rate, this passed by the city of Columbus effectively does nothing. It's a resolution that goes nowhere. They just want to stand up and, and say, we're, uh, we're in favor of abortion at all costs, and now, Columbus, you have. It's a shame. 
There was uh, probably not a dry eye in attendance yesterday for both Parisians and for tourists alike watching what unfolded before their eyes late in the afternoon as Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burned. We have the latest news now from Paris that it likely will not be reopened to the public for some three years. A spokesman for Notre Dame telling ABC News that the entire roof is gone, standing water on the floor from the firefighting efforts, and a group of cathedral staff, members of the Ministry of Culture and firefighters, had responded early enough, fortunately, to the fire to be able to save a number of artifacts from inside the church. Some 80% of those relics were saved and taken for safekeeping to Paris's City Hall. Today, French President Manuel Macron said the church would be rebuilt, and so far some sorry, $679 million has been pledged to help the rebuild. NBC's Richard Engel explains more about the very difficult task that they're all facing ahead. The crashing of the spire sent a shockwave through the building. The loss of the roof upset the structural nature of the building, and there is a concern now that it could shift, that there could be a collapse, that there are internal cracks and weaknesses. Construction workers there uh, using a drill to remove one of the statues. That is a statue that is hanging in a very precarious position right over that area that they fear is the most structurally damaged at the moment. So there is already a debate in this country whether they should try to replicate exactly what was there. And, or there are others who say they should keep with the tradition that is Notre Dame's own tradition of adding new additions. Meanwhile, tourists that perhaps have vacation plans to the City of Lights coming up in the future are going to have to uh, skip one of the highlights of the tour. Typically, the most visited landmark in Paris is, in fact, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, even more so than the famed Eiffel Tower. Yesterday, a group of students from New Jersey were some of the last of the fortunate ones to visit the famous cathedral, as Lisa G. explains. The group was among the last tourists to see the cathedral before a massive fire broke out. The 26 students and five teachers are in Paris as part of an 11-day French immersion trip. They spent around an hour in the cathedral and left around 6.20 p.m. to get dinner just as the fire started and were notified that it was a major blaze while they were eating dinner. They're okay, but as you can imagine, pretty rattled. After dinner, the group watched the fire from a nearby bridge as the rest of us watched on TV. Lisa G, NBC News Radio, New Jersey. I suppose to keep all of this in perspective, you know, we have to be mindful that at the end of the day, we are grateful that over 400 firefighters that were involved in the firefighting efforts yesterday, only one was injured, not a single fatality. Um, it's, it's sad to see the destruction of this historic building, but it is at the end of the day just a building. And while certainly symbolically, historically, architecturally significant, um, maybe one of the bigger lessons, and we'll talk about this when Dr. Alex McFarland joins us momentarily, one of the bigger lessons perhaps is um, this occurring on Monday, Thursday, heading into um, this, the holiest week of weeks on the Christian calendar, and that so much of the message of what we celebrate this coming Sunday on Easter Sunday is the overcoming um, of of um, Christ, overcoming death and sin, and uh, we celebrate His victory over the grave. And so, while it's sad to see the building go, I think our hearts can be encouraged that there's a 
perhaps deeper message here in all of this. Certainly, as a result of yesterday's fire, Paris's skyline looks much different today as one of the most iconic structures was literally lost. Joining us now with some comment and insight is Reverend Kevin O'Brien, president of Santa Clara University. And uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Let's, let's talk first a bit about um, what you've seen. We've all seen on television. I think we were shocked watching the flames tear through that building yesterday. Um, the extent of the damage leading some to question, um, is it worth spending the money? Could the money be better spent um, by starting fresh as opposed to attempting to revive what remains of an 850-plus-year-old structure? thousand years this building has been here, and it has been through a lot of ups and downs throughout its history, and the building remains. It will be rebuilt. There's something resilient about this building, but more so something resilient about people's faith. And that's what I'm attaching to now. And uh, Father O'Brien, let's talk about that for a moment, because as I suggested in my opening remarks, the, the loss of a parish, the loss of a church where the body of Christ gathers on Sunday to, to celebrate, as they will, on Sunday in churches all across the world to celebrate um, Resurrection Sunday, to gather together as the body of Christ. When, when, when the loss of a building like that takes place, uh, it, it's always sad, I think, and, and perhaps while painful at any time, even as we've seen some tragic destructions of a group of three churches in uh, the South in Louisiana here over the last uh, probably six, eight weeks, that's largely uh, perhaps the efforts of, of uh, hate groups and, and arsonists. It doesn't appear as if the loss of the uh, the roof of Notre Dame was the work of arsonists. But nevertheless, I, I think perhaps that this is this is a painful event, especially leading into Holy Week. What do you think? This was a gut punch for a lot of uh, a lot mm. of Catholics, not just in France but around the world. You, you talk to folks here in the U.S. I'm I'm on the West Coast. My friends on the East Coast. Just it was a gut punch because you just hate to see this symbol of the Catholic Church go up in flames like this. And certainly, we we agree with that. And as as I alluded to, the the notion here that the bigger message, perhaps, for all of us, the message that we can use in a, in a lesson like this in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Um, in your opinion, does this really help to sort of encapsulate the hope of the resurrection, the ability to to uh, overcome loss, death? Holy Week for Christians is Easter Sunday, where where hope and life. Um, prevail over darkness and death and fire and destruction. And so I think that's where we're, and I, what Macron said about we're going to rebuild, in a sense, that's the clarion call. That's the summons of, of Holy Week, is that we're going to be re- rebuild our lives, we're going to rebuild this church. Hello, Father O'Brien, did we, did we lose him there? Yep, it sounds like you got to cut off. Well, there was Father Kevin O'Brien, president of Santa Clara University, um, commenting on the loss, uh, at least thankfully not the the total destruction, but a significant amount of damage to Notre Dame Cathedral. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk a bit about uh, the the more moral and spiritual lessons of what transpired in Paris yesterday as Dr. Alex McFarland joins us next. Right now, though, we're going to get you an update on Bay Area Travel. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
As we think through the tragedy of what transpired in Paris, France yesterday, it is perhaps good to put all of this into perspective. That, yes, it is an incredible landmark. It is one that contains much history, phenomenal architecture, a gathering place for the body of Christ, a house of worship. As we look at it, though, how do we keep in perspective uh, the balance between a sense of mourning for an old church building and and perhaps the broader, more important spiritual lessons? Joining me now is Dr. Alex McFarland, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. Dr. McFarland, always a delight to have you with us. Uh, certainly, I, as, as I think most of us, watching the film, watching the video yesterday of uh, what transpired. It, it's always heartbreaking when you see a historic building of any sort be destroyed that way, let alone a church. But put it into perspective for us in terms of the deeper, broader, more spiritual lessons here that perhaps we as body believers can extrapolate from an experience like this. Well, Craig, thank you for having me on. It's always such a joy to be on your program. I, I'm grateful to have this time uh, but, you know, I I was watching yesterday, and, and yes, I grieved at the damage done to such a magnificent edifice. But it reminds me of uh, when I was, I was pastor of a church that was 275 years old, and they uh, loved the building and almost idolized the building. But the good news is that Christianity does not stand merely on the preservation of cherished historic artifacts. Every historical building in the world could be lost, but we still have the reality of a risen Savior and an empty tomb and the promise that Christ is coming back. And so, you know, it's funny, Craig, uh, you're very gracious to let me be on a little bit later than usual because I was up speaking literally moments ago from Second Peter chapter 1 that says we have not followed cleverly devised fables. And, and as much as we appreciate the rich history of Christendom, and we appreciate uh, Notre Dame, uh, the reality is Jesus is alive. That's the most verified fact of ancient history. And the Christian gospel is still true, still relevant, even still urgent, uh, regardless of any physical object that's present or not present here in this world. You know, and I think something, too, I mean, as much as we can marvel at the talent, the hard work, the craftsmanship that went into this architecture in creating this great cathedral, it is, at the end of the day, is still a building that is fashioned by the hands of man, uh, but through the resources provided by very God himself and the talent and skills that it took to create such a... Uh, a wonderful landmark, again, God-given. And I think we need to be reminded, too, that, you know, um, should the earthquake and all of these buildings fall down, we can still worship God in the greatest cathedral that mankind has ever been exposed to, short of heaven, and that is God's created earth. I mean, what what more brilliant than a ceiling not painted by um, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, but a ceiling painted by very God himself? Um, and I think as we look at the world around us and the stunning beauty of, of God's created earth, that there's so much that cries out uh, to the testimony of a loving, creative God, and this tremendous gift that that he's given to us that is, um, you know, as long as he, he wills and it tarry, uh, is, is timeless and for 
forever. Someday we know the earth will pass away, but the good news is um, we're going to be going to a new place for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life that will absolutely, completely defy the imagination. And maybe that's the uh, the important lesson here, that um, even something that survived 850 years is just a twinkling in the, of the eye in God's economy. Amen. You're, you're, so, you're so right. You know, I, I often tell people, and I, I'm not trying to be trite or, or speak a cliché, but I, I say this in all seriousness, the tomb was left empty so that your heart could be made full. Uh, one writer said Christ didn't die between two candles in a cathedral, but between two thieves on a cross. And one of the beautiful things, Craig, as you articulate so well, is, is the, the beautiful artistry of God the Creator and the beautiful story of salvation and Jesus laying down his life to give us life. I mean, think about it. Uh, he was crucified outside the city so that we could be brought inside to his family and to that eternal city. And this week at Easter, as we, you know, um, historians believe Tuesday was the day that uh, Judas consorted with the Pharisees to betray Jesus. And, uh, you know, through the arrest and the, the trials and then the ultimately crucifixion at Passover, the Lamb of God, the final Lamb, whose blood would not merely be a temporary covering of sin, as the sacrificial lambs were. The blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, would be a permanent eradication of sin, and that tomb would be empty. John 11, Jesus said, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. But as you know, in John 11, 25, 26, Jesus asked the, the listeners, he said, do you believe this? And Craig, to your listeners, I would just uh, appeal that uh, they they ponder, have they put their faith in Christ? Do, do they believe this, not just to know about Christ, but to personally appropriate this for themselves? And so, uh, isn't it, Craig, isn't it just a, a thrilling reality that a, a real Jesus really rose, the sin debt has been paid, and whosoever will may come and have that everlasting life? That's that's really the point of our, our life here, and if you miss Jesus, you've missed everything. And isn't it a reality here at Easter that we can rejoice in these great truths? You know, I saw a photograph here in the last oh, probably uh, three hours uh, that was taken in the early morning hours this morning with much of the uh, the charred timber uh, covering the floor of the cathedral, and yet there in the very background toward the altar area was a cross that survived the flames, that survived the destruction, and the camera lens happened to catch the glow of the sunlight beaming through a hole in the roof of all things that, that, that really highlighted one's attention. Immediately as you look at this photograph this taken in this huge cavern of destruction, there in the middle is a cross. Now, you might look at that in the flesh and say, well, the cross survived the flames. Um, but symbolically, I think there's an important, more important lesson here, and that is the cross of Christ overcame sin and death. It is the cross that we will uh, look at um, in, in a sense of, I think, awe and wonder that a God could so love his creation that he would sacrifice his only son on that cross, 
that he might be as that ultimate sacrifice, the means by which, the bridge by which we might be uh, reconciled unto the Father, be forgiven of our sins as Christ takes on the burden, the price that we should have paid, and on Easter Sunday morning celebrate Christ's victory over death and the grave through his bodily resurrection as been prophesied uh, by the prophets of old. And so I think symbolically uh, the notion, keeping in mind uh, the importance of the cross um, as we move into Good Friday and through Easter Sunday morning is so critically important because at the end of the day, Dr. McFarland, you and I both know that without the cross, without that shed blood, um, this is all for naught. Yeah. Well, you know, the cross stands. Uh, you know, I'm glad that the cross apparently survived the fire at Notre Dame, uh, but the cross stands. And, you know, I even have secular people. I, I speak at a number of universities, and believe it or not, yesterday I did six uh, assemblies in public schools uh, about the U.S. Constitution. And even secularists often ask me, you know, what is the world coming to? And the good news is that the gospel still changes lives. And in a world of opinions, there is objective truth that Jesus is real. Uh, we do seminars called Truth for a New Generation. I'm, uh, Liberty University helps us put these on, and, and I'm so thankful that they do. But we're telling young people not only about God, but about America. And the solution is not progressivism or secularism or, uh, or socialism. The solution is what the framers believed in uh, the God of the Bible, the foundation of moral truth, and the Savior of the world. And just, we, we're, I'm excited, Craig, because we have a message. Uh, in a world of opinion and speculation, we have good news, truly good news, the message of Christ. And frankly, uh, it's been God and country, you know, the bedrock of our great nation. And we need a revival in, in our conferences and in our uh, media and in the resources we create, and uh, I and my staff on the road speaking, we're telling people there is hope, and that hope is Jesus. And what better time than Easter to tell the world again the old, old story of a living Savior? You're doing it, I'm doing it, and, and we all need to do it. You know, I had somebody ask me today, aren't you heartbroken about the damage of the cathedral? I said, well, it, it, it certainly is sad whenever you see great architecture damaged in that fashion. But heartbroken, I don't know that that's the term that I would necessarily use. You know, we, we serve a God who transcends uh, such things. And um, the, the, the loss of a building hewn by, by mankind's own hands can, can always be, be rebuilt. Um, but the greater, the more important message here is that we serve a God um, who, even in times of, of loss or confusion uh, or fear, um, is there for us, stands with us, and um, and has proven the ability to overcome sin, death, and the grave. And this is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so from a Christian perspective, while, yes, it's sad, uh, it, it doesn't steal us of our joy. It doesn't rob us of our hope because our joy and our hope are not, are not focused on or grounded in, in things of this earth, uh, but in eternal things and in the relationship that we have with very Christ himself um, through the substitutionary work that he has provided that uh, we, uh, we every year at this time on the Christian calendar um, look to, to be reminded of not just the cross and the price that was paid, 
but as important, even more important. Um, if it was just a matter of Christ dying for our sins, end of story, um, it would be a sad ending. But the good news is that Christ overcame death and sin, and his bodily resurrection on the third day um, gives credence, gives proof to that, that when they went to go and find the tomb, they found the, the big rock had been rolled away, and he was not there. And so we, uh, we certainly um, wish to share that message, as we should as believers, with those all around us this Easter season. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. More information, by the way, on Dr. McFarland's work, uh, you can go to truthforanewgeneration.com. That's truthforanewgeneration.com. He's always on speaking tours and uh, speaking at events and so forth uh, to help do just that, deliver truth, deliver good news, deliver hope to this current generation. Truthforanewgeneration.com. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland. 532, we're going to get you updated on some traffic here, then back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking today largely about the the life-changing power of the gospel as we are here during this Holy Week. And um, there's a new book out that I think is um, demonstrative of this. Um, You see the film, The Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio, came out a couple of years ago. Um, You can probably still catch it on Netflix um, it's an interesting film, but I think at the end of the day, uh, we don't necessarily need a movie to show us how corrupt the industry can be. Most of us perhaps experienced the results of that corruption firsthand back in 2009 with the whole uh, downturn in the markets, the derivative disaster, and uh, the, the subsequent uh, Great Recession that um, that followed all of that. Um, that is sort of a backdrop that 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 notion of the wolf on Wall Street uh, leads to our next guest here. He's the author of a new book called Wall Street to the Well, a story of transformation from fortune to faith, uh, newly published by Illuminify Media Global Publishers. And um, with us today, the senior pastor of Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. We're pleased to have with us Stuart Fullendorf. And um, Pastor Stuart, good to be with us today. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Craig. Glad to be with you. Let's talk about this interesting tale. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure with that introduction, some people thought I was about to uh, introduce a hedge fund manager or <laughs> some some big shot working with, uh, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs. And, and yet here you are serving as the senior pastor of a church in Littleton, Colorado. It has been an interesting road for you, an interesting transition. Um, help us understand, how does a, a young wunderkid um, who was a... a uh, a go-getter on Wall Street. I think you took upwards of two, three corporations uh, public on NASDAQ by the time you were in your 40s. Um, How do you go from all of that to learning some very hard lessons in life to eventually having sort of your own um, woman at the well, in this case, the the, the Wall Street um, power broker at the well experience with Christ? 
Yeah, Craig, I had to laugh a little bit as you were talking about The Wolf of Wall Street because one of the movies that had a huge influence on my life back in 1987 when I was in business school was the movie Wall Street. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember sitting in that movie theater. Greed is good. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Gordon Gecko, and boy, I got shivers. I got goosebumps. Boy, it really fired me up. But, uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate the question. And that that's exactly why, why um, I thought I would put my story out there is uh, I went from being a, uh, you know, a self-sufficient um, atheist, if you will. I grew into a, a pretty good argument for atheism by reading people like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and uh, making, you know, making money and, and finding my way through business and doing things that I wanted to do, at least I thought I wanted when I went to business school, and as I started to accomplish more and more along the way, I had a growing sense of dissatisfaction. I couldn't understand why I was not more satisfied making the money and buying, being able to buy things and, and accomplishing all the things in my career that I thought I wanted, and yet along the way, uh, I had a growing sense of dissatisfaction and a sort of growing sense of, of lack of purpose in my life, even as I was accomplishing everything. And that's really the, the core basis of, the, of my transformation from fortune to faith. And part of this along the way, there were some difficult lessons that I alluded to a moment ago. And, and, and I'm just curious for the benefit of, of listeners and to kind of put all of this into, into context for us. So uh, as I suggested, uh, you had the tiger, the proverbial tiger by the tail. You took three companies public on NASDAQ by the time you were in your early 40s. You're making good money. You're well-known. You're popular on Wall Street. Uh, how does a guy with all that to his credit, to his success, uh, wind up under the microscope of the Security Exchange Commission? I mean, at the end of the day, as uh, Bernie Madoff will tell you, that's never a good place to be. No, it isn't indeed. I found myself investigated by the SEC and ultimately pr- prosecuted um, in, a, in a civil case for accounting violations um, in the last company that I took company called Isilon Systems after I had left the company. and. And yeah, it's one of those it's one of those stories about how I became I was a 29 year old and became a chief financial officer of a com- company, and by 31, took the company public um, with our other executives, and grew the company. I was employee number 55. Grew the company to about 1,409 facilities around the world, and moved our headquarters to Denver. Didn't find that um, satisfying enough, and so through a headhunter, moved to Seattle, and took another company called MetaWave Systems Public in 2000. The telecommunications bubble burst, and, and that lasted a couple of years, and then got into being an investment banker and doing M&A deals, and, and then came across the, the last company I was with called Isilon Systems, which was a tech company out of Seattle, and it ended up being a very high flyer, and I knew it would, being worth billions of dollars. And it was actually on that IPO roadshow that I became uh, a Christian. But my, my conversion to, 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 to Christianity and my salvation, obviously driven by the Holy Spirit, um, was really led by the fact that my wife became a Christian in the, in the 90s, in 1997. Um, we, were, we went through a very difficult period of being unequally yoked, but I saw how the gospel and her faith was transforming her life. And between that and um, other circumstances in my life, uh, my heart started to soften, and that's kind of what led me to consider Jesus Christ. You had been, as we say, sort of a, the the um, the hotshot 
on Wall Street. At what point did your sense of um, self-confidence begin to overcome you? In other words, you, you, you know, I mean, all of us, I think, have felt it, and the boss comes in and says, gee, you've done such a great job, here's a raise, we're grateful for it, but he also went well up with a bit of, a bit of sense of pride, thinking, well, I've worked so hard, I'm so good at what I do. So I'm, I'm curious as to what point do you feel as if your own sense of self-worth um, and pride begins to become an enemy? Yeah, that's a great question because I think when I, my parents got divorced when I was a teenager, I turned um, away from any sense of, of spirituality or religion and, and uh, really turned to taking care of myself. And so I grew up in a seeker-friendly or seeker household. Uh, my grandparents were practicing Jehovah's Witnesses for a period of time. I remember walking around handing out watchtowers, but what ended up happening with me is as I got older and older, by the time I became a 29-year-old CFO, um, I would say both through pride, um, com- competitiveness, and also fear, I really set out to, to make my way. And and uh, so by, the, by pretty early in my career, my late 20s, I was already considering myself very highly and, and, you know, pride is the pregnant mother that gives birth to all sin, as St. Augustine would say. Um, C.S. Lewis said pride is the, the sin that makes all other sins seem like mere flea bites. So the fact that I was a prideful, um, narcissistic, if you will, atheist individual, um, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln Howe was the show, uh, that's exactly where I was. I was very prideful and, and thought I knew everything. And uh, I, I have it on good authority that it also shows up on the scene just before the Great Fall. <laughs> yeah, that would be an understatement. I, if my salvation experience was one where I had hit the peak of my career, and it was actually on that at that um, IPO roadshow, the International Public Offering Roadshow of the third company, that my salvation occurred. So, um, you know, at that point, unlike some people, and it's probably related, where they find themselves under a bridge, I found myself worth eight figures and took a step back and I remember walking around the Morgan Stanley trading floor on the day that we priced our stock and it was going public thinking, why don't I feel better? Hmm. You know, what's what's the deal here? Yeah, the I pinnacle of your up. career, you should be saying, hey, I've arrived, look what I've achieved. Instead, you're, 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 it, it's, it's ringing hollow to you and you're asking yourself, is there nothing more than this? That's right. Ecclesiastes too, vanity of vanities. Uh, you know, no matter how many planes I was private planes I was flying in, how many limousines, how much money I had, I had a sense of growing dissatisfaction and actually growing despair that if I'm accomplishing everything I wanted, why am I so dissatisfied? Mm. And, and questions perhaps we all should should struggle with, or maybe some eavesdropping on this conversation here this afternoon that say, you know, if I just had more money, if I just had more cash, working toward uh, building that uh, uh, that critical mass, and that will satisfy me. That that will deal with my sense of longing. That will give me a sense of fulfillment. And yet, as we're hearing from our guest today, Stuart Fullendorf, uh, nope. In fact, just the contrary. That it seems as if the more you accumulate, the less satisfaction that you have. We're talking about his new book, Wall Street to the Well, a story of transformation from fortune to faith. We take this time out, we'll get you updated on some traffic, and then we'll come right back to more of our conversation here as this Tuesday edition of Lifeline continues. Right now, here's that look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Pastor Stuart Fullendorf is with us today. He is senior pastor at Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado, and the author of a new book we're discussing, Wall Street to the Well, a story of transformation from fortune to faith. Pastor Fullendorf, I, I read somewhere that at some point along this journey, you also had a bit of a struggle with alcoholism. Was that coping mechanism? Was that uh, escape? I know a lot of these deals are done over the you know proverbial three or four martini luncheon, but, but how did that play into all of this? That's true. I, was, uh, I went from being a functional alcoholic to a non-functional alcoholic, and back in the early days when I got into business, I would work 80, 100 hours a week, and I would find myself with other executives at the bar late at night kind of mapping out business plans on the back of napkins. And it actually it progressed more and more for me so that once I actually was saved, was became a Christian, it was a couple of years later that I, I realized uh, it had progressed to the point where I could not glorify God and and be a, a drinker uh, at the level I was at. And at the level I was at, was I was drinking all the time. So um, I felt very convicted uh, after becoming a Christian. I really didn't feel convicted beforehand, though it was starting to spiral out of control. But um, it was both a conviction of, uh, the, of, of a spiritual nature, uh, of a moral nature. And so, yeah, I ended up to, at a point of checking into rehab. Um, I went through 28 days of rehab, uh, secular rehab. There's a, a story in the book about how there was no Bibles in there. So um, my wife would come visit me on, um, on, on visiting days on Sundays, and, and she would smuggle Bibles in. And I ended up leading a Bible study in rehab with about 20 of the 90 people that were in there. And so, uh, it, yeah, it was quite an experience, and it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, and it's another reason why I wrote this book, is to, to say that, that, particularly if you're older and you become a Christian, but it doesn't matter the age, uh, and you have some of these addictions, which are really a worship disorder in many ways. They're filling that empty hole in your heart, as Blaise Pascal would say, with anything other than Jesus Christ leads to ruin. And that's what it was leading to for me. And so I went through, and still am part of recovery. I love Celebrate Recovery. I love AA, and I, I really helped lead those. And um, it was an experience that God used the what seemingly was a curse to be a great blessing in my life. You spoke earlier of that sense of dissatisfaction. You'd do the big deal, and once you got there, instead of having a, a celebratory sense in your spirit, you had a sense of, of emptiness, of, 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 as I said, complete satisfaction or lack of satisfaction. You talked, too, about um, your wife's influence, she having come to Christ prior to you, and, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit using her to speak truth into your life. When you got to the breaking point, was it was it any one event that kind of became the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, or or did it eventually sort of all pile together on you one day where you said, you know what, I can't do this anymore? Yeah. Um, when my wife became a Christian in 1997, we went through, before my heart started to soften in 2003 and I became a Christian in 2006, we went through particularly that six-year period of being unequally yoked that was very difficult. Um, and so uh, I wasn't ambivalent about it. I was angry that she had become a Christian. I would come downstairs, and she would be reading the Bible, and she would kind of hide it from me. But along the way, she continued to pray for me. She would leave books around. I knew she would leave books around what she wanted me to read, and it eventually got to the point where I would secretly read them, because pridefully I didn't want her to know. So books like Born Again, um, obviously the Bible about some guy who was saved in a cave. She was doing everything she could. And so by 2003, she asked me to go to church, and she had been asking me for a long time, and I finally said yes, and we went to a great church in, in Seattle. 
I heard a sermon on predestination, which you wouldn't think is a seeker-friendly sermon, but for me it was great when he got up in front of the pulpit and yelled, you know, all you middle-aged men, you're not God if you don't understand this. And I was like, well, I thought I was functionally God. But, but anyway, from that point forward, I, I started going to her community group. I wasn't a Christian, but I liked the people. Uh, a man who was a CFO of a big company asked me to be part of a Bible study. I said, well, I'm not religious. And he said, I'm not religious either. I just have a relationship with Jesus. And I thought, wow, that, that's, I don't understand that. And so each of these things led to the point where by 2006, when we were getting ready to go on the um, initial public offering roadshow for Isilon Systems, which is now one of the biggest divisions of Dell EMC, uh, my heart had softened. And you're, you're in this process, uh, there's got to be a, a real reckoning that's taking place in, in, that, in that, that softening, that eventually you go full circle. You turn your back on Wall Street. Um, you, you go into full-time ministry. I, I'm, I, I'm not familiar with uh, Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado, but I'm, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and guess that they're not paying you eight figures a year. So <laughs> there has to be um, a, a tremendous lifestyle change for you in making the transition from one to the other. Yeah, yeah. It was. I became a pub, uh, Christian in 2006, halfway through the IPO Roadshow with Isilon Systems, and then, then from that point forward, uh, my life actually got harder. I cashed out stock options. I had to get sober. I bought, a, I bought a wine distributorship, which a good alcoholic will do. <laughs> to the 2008-2009 recession hit. Um, basically lost all of our net worth um, as we tried to, uh, as we um, unwisely levered up the business and bought another wine distributorship. And so by 2010 or 11, I had suffered through, mightily suffered through things. But what I was learning is I was suffering through the loss of my money and my reputation with a lawsuit and um, having to get sober and all these is that I was reading in things like Hebrews 12:25 and forward where it says, God will shake that which is shakeable to leave the unshakable to remain and that for those whom he loves, he will discipline. And so, yes, I was suffering from some of my own sins. I had to come to terms with being a 43-year-old new Christian, and my whole, all my worldview changed. My politics, my, uh, my, 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 you know, theology, all of it had, had and did change. But along the way, even through all the suffering, I felt God's glorious, sovereign hand in the middle of all of that. And so by, by the time 2011 rolled around, uh, I, I went to my wife and said, um, you know, I feel called to go back to seminary and learn more about God. I didn't know if I was going to be a pastor. I had no idea. I just wanted to learn more about God, and she just gave me a big hug and said, of course. And so uh, through all of that, I got my MDiv um, at Denver Seminary um, and put my my hands out after working at a, a pretty large megachurch um, and said, okay, Lord, where will you have me? And we ended up at this little church with about 35 people uh, that had a different name, and then over the last two and a half years, we've grown like a weed, and we, we changed the name to Redemption Hills Church. So you wouldn't have heard about it, because it was basically a small church that was almost a church plant. Wow. And, and, and God really stripped away a lot of the things that stood in the way of your relationship with him, didn't he? He did indeed. And that's one of the themes of the book, is that we can kick ourselves over the things that have led us to uh, a part of brokenness and suffering. But I deeply believe, and so does the Bible say this, that God gives, God takes away, that God's hand is in suffering. And there's so many bad theologies out there that talk about, hey, God would never have, a, have one of his loved ones suffer. And I can assure you that God loved me, and his hand was in suffering, and he led to me to a, me to a place that saved my life, saved my soul, and put me in a place that I am gloriously 
joyful. Am I happy every day? No. Um, is it hard at times? Yes. Do I make barely enough to pay the bills at times? Yes. But I, you talk about great purpose and a great serenity in life. It's, I've never had anything like it. Well, let's talk about that because you articulated earlier that even as you were doing these 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 big, incredible, <coughs> pardon me, multi-million dollar Wall Street deals, uh, that you you still felt empty. You you still had a tremendous lack of satisfaction. How did that change for you? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I learned is that, um, and, and you, you're really in the middle of out, out there, Craig, with Silicon Valley and all my friends that still work in that area and the VCs and so forth. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a successful business career. It's one thing I always want to tell people. Businessmen often will come to me and say, well, I want my life to Look, you, you can have a great business. You can have a great, you know, a great career. But when your career is, is your identifying factor and, and Jesus is not, even if you're a Christian and your career is first and Jesus is second, you're going to suffer ruin and you're going to, you're going to question your purpose. But if, you're, if you love Jesus deeply, he's number one in your life even more than your wife, as has happened with me. I love my wife dearly, but Jesus is first. Then I can have a successful ministry. I can have a successful business career. I can make much money. And if if that's not the basis of my identity and my heart, then to God be the glory. Jesus is number one, and when that happens, your whole life changes and transforms by the glory of the gospel. The core message of this, what's the big takeaway that you want readers to to really um, learn from your, your own life experiences? Yeah, Jesus plus anything ruins everything, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's a, there's a purpose and an understanding that all of God's gifts are given to us because of him, and that if we look to try to be sufficient through anything other than Christ's sufficiency, and self-sufficiency is the worst, then we'll find ourselves always questioning what the purpose of life is. But the purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him fully, and enjoy all His good gifts. And the only way you can do that, a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, ten million, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What really fulfills the heart, the soul, and the life of an individual is having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are days away from Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Um, the significance of this week for you? Uh, I would say it is everything in, in, in eternity, um, all the way from Good Friday of Christ sacri- sacrificing himself at the cross for those who are undeserving, which is all of us. No one's righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. And through his amazing act of, 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 of mercy and grace at that cross on Friday, and when Sunday arrives and we get to celebrate his resurrection, it's, it's symbolic, it, it's but it's also realistic, and it's, it's a sign of what all of us get to experience, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and through that, we get to be resurrected as well. And you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be black, white, male, or female, but there is no distinction for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I just love this week. And, uh, you know, the good news is that you don't have to fill out a, um, an application. They're not going to do any uh, means testing of your net worth to get into heaven, um, because that's not how you get in. That's the good news. Um, The book, again, is called Wall Street to the Well, a story of transformation from fortune to faith. Pastor Stuart Fullendorf with us today, senior pastor at Redemption Hills Church in Littleton, Colorado. Information on the book, by the way, online at wallstreettothewell.com. That's wallstreettothewell.com. I imagine you can also order it 
online at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, et cetera, et cetera. All right, our thanks to Pastor Stuart Fullendorf for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Six o'clock exactly from KFAX. We're going to get you a look at some headline news, but first we're going to get you a look at some headline traffic and then back with more as this Tuesday edition continues. Right now, here's that update on traffic. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.